Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. In a previous episode, we discussed how developing a white-labeled or client-customizable application makes things more difficult from the development perspective. However, that's not the whole picture. There is a lot of work in maintaining such an application over the long haul. And a lot of it is work that you might not think about until you've experienced it. In this episode, we're going to discuss how post-development and support processes get changed in a white-label application. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, um, work is calming down a little bit. There's uh, there's rays of hope there. You know, we had a whole bunch of stuff going on, and it looks like a few things have kind of become the main priority. So, uh, that's nice. I'm continuing to work on the server room. It's gradually getting there. I moved the wine storage cabinet out um, by myself. Yeah, on, a, you, on, a, you, on that hand cart out there. You you do things like this when I'm literally five minutes away. I could have like, yeah. I just I looked at it and I'm like, it's time to move that. And so I did. It was very very dangerous the way I did it too. But I got it, <laughs> and I didn't die, and I didn't break anything. That's pretty much the criteria I use for success. So how about you? Well, I am sitting around waiting on a phone call from you saying, hey, I need your awesome lifting skills to come lift this piece of furniture off of me. Yeah. No, I'm just messing with you. I don't think there's any pieces big enough left that I have to worry about. Maybe the bookshelves, but they're light. Um, Unless you leave the books on them. Yeah. Well, if I do that, then I deserve to be buried. (laughs) So yesterday was the 4th of July. Um, I had the day off and spent it out on my bike. I rode around to various small towns uh, in the Nashville area to see what, if anything, they had going on during the day. Um, small town celebrations are a lot of fun. I really like, I grew up in a small town. I just, I like that. And so I went around looking for some. I was really disappointed. There's only about one or two uh, celebrations and they were not the town, but they were like a, a restaurant or something that was having a big barbecue or um, one place was having a big country dance thing. Yeah. And just not much going on, but I had a lot of fun out on my bike. I got a lot of sun. So, and then uh, hot out there, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Uh, I should have put sunscreen on again about halfway through the day, but I just didn't think about it. I actually ended up in the town that I grew up in at a friend's parents' house. Uh, She sent me a message on Facebook inviting me over for burgers and fireworks. So that was really cool. Speaking of fireworks, though, I've got something that might be exciting for those living in drought-stricken areas of the USA. So this is an article, it's actually from USA Today, so it's kind of interesting that they were talking about something that's a little IoT, but it is drones replacing 4th of July fireworks. 
It's an interesting article about how towns and cities in the drier western states of the USA found a way to celebrate the 4th of July without the risk of starting fires. Uh, they are now trying out shows using drones to create the effects of exploding lights in the sky. Uh, the article also talks about other areas where drones have been used in light shows, including the 2018 Winter Olympics. This is a really interesting article. I have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? We got a Slack message from E. Roberts, and this was private, but, you know, going to share it. Well, he didn't say not to share it, but we'll, we'll get into that here in a minute. He said, before your podcast, I was in very heated arguments with my boss almost every day. Small startup with limited funds, etc. But after listening to you guys, I figured I might be a bit of the problem. Communication is great, and development to production time has increased significantly because of that. I think he means development to production time has decreased significantly. I'm not trying to get a water bottle, nor use the force. That was serious. So this was in a private conversation back and forth, um, probably about an hour. You know, he and I went back and forth um, on another topic, but he brought this up. Now he gets a water bottle. Anyway, force and no force. <laughs> so thanks for the comment. Uh, send Will or myself. Um, actually, send it to me because if you send it to him, then he'll have to send it to me anyways. Yeah. Um, That's a, not my spreadsheet. Yeah, I know. Um, a message with your contact information because we do have a water bottle just for you, even though you weren't looking for one. Um, that was great. One's looking for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that That's good. Um but yeah, that, that was a great comment. That's very encouraging. And uh, I'm glad Will shared that with me and uh, we were able to, to read it out on the show. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Google+. We're also on Instagram, Path, and Tumblr. Check us out each week where we do a live recording and talk about what's going on in the world and answer some listener questions or do like our commenter did and join us anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. White label applications offer an additional level of challenges over normal application development. Due to some of these constraints, many simple tasks become orders of magnitude harder or can't even be done at all. In this episode, we'll discuss how white labeling impacts your application after it's deployed, because we all know that it isn't over once it's installed. And the first thing that can change drastically is how you do troubleshooting and instrumentation of your application. Many clients are not going to like random outbound connections coming out of their data center or inbound for that matter. So you're not going to be able to query and go, hey, give me the things. Yeah. Because if they're doing serious stuff with it, which they probably are, if they're wanting to white label it, they don't really want to leave that open. Mm -hmm. Now, this means that you're generally not going to get an advance notice that an error is cropping up on a client system until they call you. Right. And this is one thing that I really miss about developing software for small startups and things like that that have their own infrastructure is when an error occurs for a client, the developers get an email and we're already working on it before the phone call comes into management. This doesn't happen with white label apps. It's already blown up and their system may be down by the time you find out about it because they not only do they get the message, they don't send it to you. They try to fix it and make it worse. And then you find out about it. Mm -hmm. 
It also means that you're going to have to come up with some way to get logging and diagnostic data from a client to you manually when the error occurs. Right. And this can be as simple as, hey, send me these uh, logging files um, or some kind of dump of stuff from the database. You might build a system that actually does that and you know, rolls it all up to, into something that can be sent. You also have to worry about, okay, what if it's being sent by email? Because now you've got a size limit. So you got a whole lot of stuff you got to really consider that you wouldn't want to have to consider in a real uh, system that you own all of. Right. Speaking of logging, you need to make sure that your logging solution doesn't clog their system up. Yeah. My favorite thing is when somebody has a heartbeat message once per, you know, like when a for loop's running and they start the for loop and they go, okay, it ticked and they do some stuff, right? And it's time consuming stuff. And then they, it, it ticks. They do some time consuming stuff. The next time it ticks, there isn't anything to do. So it immediately goes and ticks and ticks and ticks. And they're writing it to the Windows event log. Mm. That's extremely annoying for system <laughs> administrators. And it's it's also annoying if you're writing it to a text file. Because it turns out that disks still are not infinite. And they never will be. Um, even over an infinite amount of time, you're not going to have an infinite amount of disk space. So you, you can't do that. You have to uh, rotate your logs. You have to get rid of old ones so that you don't consume all the client's disk space. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that in a sane manner. So you want to make sure your app doesn't run uh, the logging and debug, for instance, where it just writes out everything all the time. Like that shouldn't be a shipped default because the client won't change it until it blows something up. Similarly, you need to be extra careful about using your logging levels. Yes. So it's not just that you know you, you configure it to, to do the right level, but your code has to be smart about it. Mm -hmm. I've seen... Lots of code that writes everything as an error because they copied and pasted. No, you need to think about, okay, what is this actually doing? Is this something to say, yeah, I'm, I'm at this point in the system or, hey, this looks a little wonky or this is broken or, hey, this blew up the entire app and those vary. So you got to pick the right one at the right place. And you got to be very, very careful about that with a client's production environment. You can get away with it in your own environment and go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's Joe Blow's code over here. He's an idiot. We know it. We hired him. We haven't fired him yet, but you know, eh, he does that. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't work for clients. You know, speaking of clients, they need to be able to configure their logging level in a focused way and they'll need to be able to hot swap the level while the system is still running. Yes. And I've seen systems where people built it where the logging level was a compile constant. So you had to recompile to change the logging level. And you know, I, of course, the first thing you do when you find that, right, is you say, okay, instead of it being, you know, pound debug or pound whatever, you know, you change it to pound crackhead. <laughs> you want to compile a constant called crackhead for this, obviously, because that's the way a crackhead would write that. And then you fix it. But it's just like a, it's it's just really a, a messed up stupid thing. Like they need to be able to change the logging level without taking the system down, mm -hmm. which means that your code has to respond to that in a reasonably timely fashion. Yeah. To the, the changing of the logging level. Now, they also need to be able to configure their logging in a focused manner. So I've seen systems where somebody will take something like inlog, which is very, very granular. Like you can say, okay, I, messages from this class are at debug level. Everything else is at warning. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people take that and go, okay, I'm going to wrap this in a thing that reads from the database and figures out the logging level and does it for the whole app, not just for that class. Like I've seen people actually remove the granularity. Don't do that. Because when a client has got a massive system going on, you know, you may be 
causing, you know, megabytes or hundreds of megabytes even of data being written per minute. That's doing just something ridiculous. stupid like that. Well, what it is is they're they're using abstraction, right? And they think, oh, this is needs to be abstracted in this way. It tends to be um, people that are right on the cusp of junior to mid level, mm-hmm. and they don't have anybody watching them. Wouldn't know what that's like at all. Yeah, <laughs> it. I mean, everybody goes through that phase, right? But you don't ship that, and you, you got to be careful, especially as a senior dev, that you you detect those sort of things before they get out. Logging should also not significantly damage system performance, or the clients will not want to use it. So. You know, let's say your logging is turned off, the system's crazy fast, but it loses three quarters of its speed when you turn logging on to like warning. Well, what's going to happen when they have a problem that they need to troubleshoot? They're not going to want to turn it on because they still need their system to run. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's say there's a credit card payment and for customers from Rhode Island with the last name of Robertson, it blows up. You don't know why. Well, they're not going to take down their payment system for the whole U.S., for Mr. Robertson in Rhode Island, but they need to fix it so they can get paid. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to put your client in that position. Like there's business reasons for that sort of no. thing. I know that's a really, really contrived example, but you'll you'll see weird edge case stuff. Yeah. And the thing is, edge cases are where logging is most effective, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's helped me solve so many edge case scenarios. Or timing issues. Yeah. Um, so much faster than if I didn't have logging. And it's funny, I was, I've been a big proponent of logging where I work, and I was helping one of our other developers get it set up on the project that she was working on. And we, we got it set up, and I, I showed her how to turn on the throw error when the logger errors. Yeah. So that she could find all the little places that she needed to like tweak and stuff. Um, and got it going. That's great. I went back and worked on my stuff, and then she came to me. She's like, I published it, and it's not working. And um, turns out there was a permissions issue, but she'd also Turned left it. Turned it back off. Oh. No, she left it on. Oh. <laughs> Where if, if she had turned it off, it would have been logging to the database just fine. It just was, had a permissions issue writing to the log file on the server. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, another thing you got to be careful about is... Um, you don't want errors in your logging to crash the thing that is trying to log. This is mm-hmm. a real problem where somebody home, you know, hand rolls their own logging framework. You see this a lot. Somebody will go, it's just writing to a text file. It isn't ever just writing to a text file. <laughs> don't do this by yourself. <laughs> My goodness. Okay, yeah. I've been doing this for a very long time. I will not write my own logging code. As, as far as managing that, like managing log rotation is bad enough, but managing just trying to get the throughput, trying to get it to go into a background thread, trying to make sure that errors don't get out and propagate and blow up the main app because, oh, I couldn't write to this text file, therefore we can't process payments. Are you joking? You, you can't have that. In a client environment, you also have to assume that they're going to screw stuff up. They're going to mess with that logging file. So when you, you, know, you ship an XML file that says, here's how to talk to the logs, they're going to change that and they may break it. They may put an invalid character in there. So you have to isolate that so that they can't break the system that easily. Also, logs shouldn't contain sensitive information. If your environment is sensitive enough, you may want to rig tests to catch this. Right. So this would be stuff like uh, the test user that you're using to log in and you you know, you know do integration testing and you know automated tests. Give that user a password that is something that wouldn't show up otherwise and log all the things and then find it in the file. 
automatically. It'll show up if it's logging something that it shouldn't be. Those kind of things need to be checked, especially in a client scenario. Like you might know enough as a developer to go, I'm not going to log this somewhere that non-admins can get to it. But the client may go, well, you know, we've got a support staff and we've got this guy that we hired off the street yesterday to, that manages phone support. And we're going to write the log somewhere where he can control F and go find that person's name in there. Well, if he finds their social security number and stuff or private health information, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that, that yeah. does not need to be in those logs. You have to be very, very careful about this, especially in apps that your clients are running mm-hmm. on behalf of their clients, because you can be in a legal tangle in a hurry. No. And lastly, on logs, log entries should contain sufficient data to trace something through the system. Now, that means some sort of correlation ID if multiple things are happening at once. Right. So, like, a request comes in, and the first thing you do is you assign it an ID. Mm -hmm. And you, with that ID, when you write that log entry, you write some other stuff. And that can be set, like, an in-log, you can set it in the, the configuration, not like an XML file, but, like, when you declare the logger, you can set other information and actually make that available. Mm Mm-hmm. And the idea here is that everything that's working with that instance gets that correlation ID and that gets written out. So when you pull it in, you can query and go, just give me the stuff for this credit card payment that went wrong, not all credit card payments, because that might be a bit much. Mm -hmm. You need to report to event logs and other sensible systems that admins already use. Right. And this is just a pet peeve. Um I've seen people write their own logging frameworks and then write their own tool to read their logs because they did it in some weird format that's just not usable by anything else. And then expect that admins at a Fortune 50 company are going to use their logging tool. That's not going to happen. Your clients are probably going to want your stuff to integrate with whatever they're already using because they're familiar with it. Well, that and their IT may be outsourced. So, So you're talking about now involving another party. Mm-hmm. in the mix with your licensing and all your proprietary stuff potentially going out of the country. Yeah. That's nasty. This can be things like Windows Event Log, Application Insights, or other third parties. Your clients aren't likely to agree on the best solution, so expect to support several, maybe even multiple in the same organization. Lastly, be prepared to offer guidance on how to use whatever tool they're using to troubleshoot your app. Just because they paid for it doesn't mean that they understand it. Yes. And so they may be going, well, I always want it to be at debugging level, right? Or they may legitimately not understand the Windows event log, Mm -hmm. for instance. And they go in there and they don't filter the log. And they're like, well, I can't find anything. Well, you know, there was an error three hours ago, but there's 10,000 messages between here and there. But if they filter down to error, that's the top one. You may have to show a client that and you have to be patient because you don't know what level of skill somebody's going to be at. Um, this is especially true with your smaller clients that are growing. You know, they may have somebody that's wearing like five hats. So you've got to be real careful about this and actually make things where they can get through. Mm-hmm. You don't want to tell them, oh, grep this file. And here's, <laughs> you know, here's eight parameters and a regex to grep this file. Like, no, they, they need to be able to find that some other way, unless you are a hundred percent certain that the people maintaining the app are Linux admins and probably more comfortable with grip. And so, what you really have to do there is you have to look at beard length. If the beard is less than eight inches, that's not happening. So 
Next, we're going to talk about how your deployment differs with a white label application. You may not have admin rights on the machines. You're actually likely not to. And this means coordinating with someone on their side. It also means you can't just deploy whenever. Yeah. So you got to schedule it mm -hmm. and you have to be available and you have to understand that if you break the system during a deployment, you're there until it's fixed. You don't this, just get to leave them dead until tomorrow. This reminds me of a conversation you and I had earlier today um, where you were talking about integrating our developer launchpad site, uh, the RSS feed, with Zapier to send out an email to our group whenever we create new content for it, which was once a month, but it would send out, hey, there's a new challenge, you know, here's how to get to it and stuff like that. Mainly so we don't have to, because yeah. we're lazy. And um, it's a great idea, but I've pointed out I'd have to change the way I write those challenges because a lot of times I will write it and then be reviewing it after I deploy and go, oh, there's a better way to word that, or I could make a, a table with this data in it that would just be easier to read and understand. And I'll go back and I'll end up deploying it two or three times because I'm doing it Friday night before our meetup on Saturday. And, you know, who's who's on there at midnight Friday night? Me. Yeah. Uh, but we're, Nobody else even knows there's a new one dropped. Right. Until Saturday when they, they show up and we're like, hey, you know, here's what we're talking about this week. But, you know, it's it's a similar idea that... When I, we're going to be integrating with something else, I can't just, you know, if I did that, then... send a bunch of emails. Yes. Friday night at midnight, there would be like eight emails going out to people. And Slack <laughs> messages. And then we would get marked as spam and we would lose deliverability. Right. Because that's the other thing. Like, it's not just the screw up, but it's the downstream costs no. of the screw up. The thing about this is it doesn't mean that we can't deploy at all. It's just it has to be structured now. Right, right. And so for with your white label applications, you're going to have to provide a decent installer and instructions for the client to be able to install it. And one of the nice things, too, about an installer versus going, here's some executables, just copy them out, just stop the service and copy it out, is with an installer, they can also roll back. Yes, and that is nice. Yeah, and it's going to be required for an enterprise environment. Like, they're mm -hmm. not going to be okay with just, oh, X, copy it out there. Like, no, you you're not doing that because they have to have a backup of the thing somewhere. Because if you screw up, like you don't want production down, especially on somebody else's system. It's bad enough on yours, mm -hmm. but this requires a lot more caution. For larger clients, the coordination between you and them can be a lot more difficult. So, for instance, you get a programmer on the other side to help with the install that you know can get into the databases and that stuff. But, oh, they've got to talk to the network administrator to get the firewall opened because you <laughs> added a port. And they got to talk to the DBA because the DBA has to go through all of your scripts to make sure you're not screwing stuff up. And then they've got to work out some SQL jobs. And they got to talk to you about that. And they've also got to talk to operations to say we need an outage window during this time. And... And oh, by the way, it touches stuff that's affected by Sarbanes-Oxley. So now you've got auditors in the mix. So let me just say that um, at larger corporations, even when you're building stuff internal, yeah, it's still like that. Yeah, but it's other people's teams. That's what really makes it a little bit worse mm -hmm. because you can't go up the food chain above you. To yeah. get to anybody that can do anything about it. <laughs> That's very true. I, I hadn't thought about it from that that perspective, but all the stuff you're talking about, I'm like, yeah, I mean, working for yeah, the working government. Yeah, for government. It's, that same it's, kind of it's very similar because it's a large organization 
And I would think that other large organizations would be very similar in the way they have things set up like that. Yeah. Um, so next, you have to test your deployment code as well. Yeah. Remember, this code is running on the client's production server, not your production server. If you break something else on there, they aren't going to be happy. Yeah, and I've seen stuff like installers taking uh, COM components, for instance, and going, oh, this version's old, delete it, and put this new one on. But it's got a breaking change, and they're using some other app that mm -hmm. needs that component, and now that's busted. Yeah. And this was more of a problem back in the day. I mean, now we've got Docker, we've got all this other stuff that tries to mitigate that. Microsoft, I think, had one recently with one of their Linux installs where they were doing something that changed, I forget what it changed on Ubuntu, but it was something that could break a bunch of other apps. Mm -hmm. And there was a way that they could have done it where that would not have been an issue, but they did this system-wide thing because they've got that approach because they're used to that. That doesn't play well in that environment. It also doesn't play well in corporate server environments. So you got to be fairly careful about that and really, really test. Another thing you've got to do is you've got to log the crap out of everything when you're making deployment changes. So you set something up, you move a file, it needs to go to a log somewhere because what will happen, let's say that a client is messing around and they're getting ready for you to do an install, right? They're fixing some things. They set a restore point. They go, oh, hey, this app, this is screwed up. So I'm going to change this setting and then we'll stop the app. And we'll do a couple other things, and they forget to turn it back on. You deploy. They turn everything back on. This thing over here breaks. Your install broke it. Well, if you can show in the logs, look, I didn't touch that. That's that's better than going, well, when was the last time it was working? Because if it only fires once every three hours, and you did, did something an hour after the last time it fired, it looks like you. So you really, really have to be careful and actually track what you're doing. You know, If it's manual, if it's not, all this stuff has to be laid out. Honestly, if I was manually messing around with files, especially with a big client, I would have two people sitting there. Mm -hmm. Also, you need to make sure that rollback, repair, and uninstall leave the system in a consistent state as well. Yeah, and this is better now than it used to be. Um, back in the you know Windows XP days and before, you would get uninstallers that didn't work, and they'd mm -hmm. leave crap in the registry. Um, they would... I can remember some games back in the day that would put like kernel modules in, and they wouldn't remove them. When they left and your system starts performing weird because that module thinks something should be there and it's erroring. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. And you've, you've got to be super duper careful with enterprise level systems just because of the amount of damage you can do in short order. You have to be extremely careful about changing global configuration on the server and you have to log that if you do it. So this can be stuff as simple as disconnecting network drives, adding network drives, um, you know, any number of other things. You've, you've got to double check that and make sure you're not screwing stuff up. Don't change path variables, mm -hmm. you know, unless they're yours and you prefix it, you know, make sure you don't get collisions on that kind of stuff. Understand that your updates will get blamed for a broken system until you can prove it wasn't you. Th this is not like the criminal sis court system where you're innocent till proven guilty. This is more like the civil divorce court where you are guilty until proven innocent. I would say it's almost like um, the court in Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail, <laughs> where you have to like be lighter than a duck. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just... The the burden of proof is tremendous because you got to bear in mind these admins can get in trouble if they screw up, mm -hmm. so they're going to blame you first. Like that's you know it's messed up the way it is and it shouldn't be that way, but 
it is that way. So you have to set things up so that you don't get nailed. Right. And your company doesn't get nailed. Right. You, it, this goes back to something that we said in, I think it was one of our live feeds where we were talking about the system is set up this way. It shouldn't be, but this is the way the game is. Yeah. And in order to survive, you have to play the way it's set up. So next with this signing is important. You need to sign your DLLs, executables, and other assets and provide checksums. Right. So you need to make sure that they can prove that this executable came from you. Mm -hmm. All the cryptographic key stuff that goes with that. You also need checksums so that you can make sure that stuff hasn't been altered. So like you, like, let's say that, let's say that you have a breach on your side, right? You've, you've rolled up and you've released something and you say, okay, here's the checksums and it's marked as me. That's another check. Yeah. But somebody could sign it with your key. Now you're in bad, bad shape if that happens. But if you have the checksums as an additional, they may screw up and not get that. But you want the clients to check that because the last thing you want is to not do this and have a client run something that looks like it's from you and isn't on a production server. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, let's say that you uh, push stuff out to an FTP location for the clients to pull. That site gets breached. And they and somebody else uploads executables. And now your client pulls those down and they run them on their production server. That's real bad. So you want to sign those. And that way, at least you can say, look, you didn't check this. Mm -hmm. It's got to be signed by you and you know, signed off. You know, it goes without saying that you and the client need to control the entire chain of custody. Which is why it's really dangerous to send things over email. Mm -hmm. Lastly, on this... Backups are critical. You can't anticipate everything, so you need to back up everything. Right. And especially like client databases, mm -hmm. back them up before you make uh, schema changes, especially if you've got schema changes that were generated by a tool and maybe you didn't look as close as you needed to. Let's say there's another column they added and there's, you know, the schema change detector says, oh, that column isn't supposed to be there. Just delete it. Well, do you know what happens when you delete a column? And you add it back. Do you know what happens to that data? It isn't there anymore. That's not, a, you know, you can't roll that back that mm -hmm. way. So you've got to put it somewhere else. No. So that may mean, you know, when you have an installer, it says, hey, I'm going to make a backup of the database right now and then do the thing. And then if everything works, then you can do whatever with a backup. But you can't take a lot of risks. It's the same thing with configuration, too. Uh, any variables or anything like that, you know, like uh, path variables, uh, all those kind of things, you've got to back that up. Mm -hmm. You also need to plan beforehand on how you're going to roll back. Like if you or support has to do this on the phone with a client on the other end, the word uh shouldn't be getting uttered. Right. You don't want to be trying to wing this yeah. because it will really, really make you look bad and that can escalate things. Like you can screw up, but if you can recover, mm -hmm. then you're fine. But if you start to look like you're going to really screw up the system, that stuff gets escalated on the other side and it will come back down your chain of command and land on your head. Even if you fix it after the fact, it, it really damages the way that the client views you. Because again, they don't want to lose their client's data because they become legally liable, which means no. they're going to turn on you because they're not going under. The next thing that you need to do in supporting and maintaining white label applications is look at your integration points. Be careful and intentional about how you version any public interface that your client uses. 
like we talked about before, this includes the database. Yeah, this means that you have to carefully design how endpoints, you know, anything public is going to act. You can add functionality sometimes, not in all cases, and you you need to know what Mm -hmm. those cases are, but you shouldn't remove or alter anything like signatures, what gets returned. You really need to apply the O of the solid principles, open, closed. You need to be open for extension to where you can add functionality to it, but close to modification because you don't want to change the existing functionality that they may be relying on. You may as well guarantee they are relying on that existing functionality. Yeah, and it it gets kind of weird because, like, look at an object signature, right? You've got a... You got a set of properties. You've got some functions, the return values. You've got expected exception types that come out. It's not constrained. Um, if you add error checking, you can break stuff. If you, you know, they have a constructor that's empty. Cool. Let's say you add another constructor for some reason. And then let's say that this goober is using reflection to find the first constructor that's available for that type and calling it. And for some reason it got swapped around. And now it's trying to call the constructor that's got three parameters instead of the empty one. You just broke their software. Like it's, you basically have to say this interface is fixed. We will never add anything to it. Like you can't make assumptions even then Mm -hmm. in many cases. So now they're being stupid if they're doing that and they're having that particular problem in most cases. But so this means you're going to have to do a bit bigger design up front, which means some people like me, your agile zealots aren't going to be very happy, but this is something that you do have to modify for. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the, the thing with Agile is it's an understanding that software is malleable. Mm-hmm. So you don't do Agile in places it isn't malleable. You don't do that on the Mars rover and go, yeah, we can patch it. <laughs> right? Like, okay, yeah, you can. It's 43 million miles away and, you know, the signal takes eight minutes to get from here to there or however long it takes. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, you can patch it. But, you know, it's in a hostile yeah. environment on another planet. Like, if you screw up, There's no recovery. So you do have to design that stuff up front. Right. And, you know, this goes back to an episode that came out a few weeks ago, which is the myths of Agile. And Agile isn't for everything. Yeah. It really isn't. And this is, this is one of those places where you may, you may be doing Agile, but you have to back off of it a little bit for these particular applications or the ones that are going to be white label. Yeah. Or you do, you do waterfall for, these pieces, but the pieces behind that, you do Agile. Yep, that's true. That is completely legitimate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, going back to your Mars rover, the the software on the rover may be written or maybe built waterfall, but the software that processes what it sends back right. could be written Agile because that's easier to change and update, whereas sending it you know, all the way out to the rover is not really realistic. Yeah. Or the, you know, for instance, the the driver for, you know, some vision thing on on the device. That mm-hmm. may be fixed, but you may say, okay, I want to alter the neural network that it's using because I found something. Like I can, I'm looking for water ice now because I saw something and I need to upload a change. Yeah. But you, you use different software life cycles depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of these things that we, we kind of got a little off topic here, but it's it's really important. To talk about that. Um, now, the thing with doing this, 
and doing a bigger upfront design, it does mean a slower release cycle, which may not be a bad thing for white label applications. It's not. Um, we looked at one point at releasing once a month. You know, that was several people were pushing that because that's common practice. But yes, you talk to the clients and they're upset if you release twice a year. Because <laughs> it's a big pain for them. Yeah, I it's believe it's a lot it. of risk, even mm-hmm. if they trust you. Yeah, yeah, they don't, they don't want that. Well, if they got to do an outage window, that's money they're not making. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cost for them. So, um, speaking of cost, to them, you need to communicate deprecation of interfaces in a reasonable manner with plenty of warning time. Right, and that means that let's say that that interface depends on something else. You need to be aware of when that mm-hmm. thing's getting deprecated, if it ha- is going to potentially impact you. So yeah. that you got to think about your upstream. Now, you can't just remove stuff that somebody might be using, especially in this scenario. You can't do it with no warning. And by the way, a month of warning isn't enough for an enterprise. Oh, like, no. They need six, eight, ten months, a year, two years. Well, they, they need. They may have to rework several of their own internal applications. So they're going to need time to plan that. I mean, even in even if they are pure agile, it still takes time to plan, build, and test and deploy. Yeah. And this also means that you have to be accurate in your communication with the client about interfaces that are going away. And that also means you have to talk to your own team mm-hmm. about that, including the sales folks, the customer support, customer success, all those folks have to know so they can tell the client because what you don't want to do is go, yeah, we told you eight months ago and nobody told them. Right. Uh-huh. This this means you can't, you cannot iterate as quickly as you might like. Um, you should also mark deprecated interfaces in code where you can. Mm-hmm. So this means stuff like, you know, if there's a, uh, a class that somebody's trying to use, you want to mark it as obsolete so that yeah. they get a compiler warning. They go, Oh, okay. And tell them where to go for the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, In the last episode, we talked about testing, but this also means regressing testing of older, still-supported interfaces. So when you create something new, you need to go back and make sure the older stuff is still working. You can't focus all your tests and bug fixing on the new code. The old stuff is still being used and is just as, if not more important than important if you want to keep vendor lock-in. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, like get a paycheck and stuff, which really <laughs> is handy for buying food. No. So, yeah, you, you don't want to do that. And the thing about it is when people update, you know, there'll, there'll be one interface that's the old interface. Mm-hmm. They add a new one, but they tend to use the code underneath the same way. Yeah. You know, they'll reuse parts of it. So if you're in there messing around to support the new interface, you got to make sure you break the old one. Yes, that is very, very true. I I have had that happen just recently. I went in and put a, a fix in for something that was found in testing and it it worked for all the stuff that we had done that sprint. Yep. It was great. We published it to UAT and UAT completely crashed doing something completely different than what we were doing because they were testing the whole of the application in UAT. And when I looked back at it, I was like, I know exactly what happened. I need to spend a bit of time figuring out how I can solve this problem to where I don't break, re-break the thing that we found broken in test, but I still support that. And it, honestly, I will admit this was me not following the open-close principle. Yeah. I I broke it. 
and it came back to bite me in the butt really yep. hard. And it will. Mm-hmm. This can mean that application changes are expensive, so you have to consider them carefully. Mm-hmm. That may mean that you don't get to make big changes as quickly. Also means you don't get to do as much resume-driven development uh, on your team. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons I get so irritated when people sneer at somebody that's using an older framework. Like, look, this person may not be able to change mm-hmm. what they're doing. They can't just say, oh, I'm going to drop Knockout and do View because, well, yeah, they, they may be able to, but there may be a situation where stuff is depending on Knockout and it's the client's stuff. You can't just willy-nilly throw the other stuff away and break all your clients, no matter how much you would like to have a newer JavaScript framework on your resume. I think the the people that tend to make those comments – I think it goes back to that junior to mid-level range because it's the, I've, I've learned these really cool things and I, I've learned why this is better than the older things, but I haven't, un- I haven't been around long enough to where the new hotness that I have has become old and busted. Yeah. And, to, and, to throw and in that some, eight or 10 times in a row and yeah. go, okay, well, it's always going to be crap. Yeah. So maybe I should just stick with what works for right now. Lastly, under integration, when you say that something is going away in six months, expect that to extend to a year or more. Yeah, because you'll tell your clients that it's going away, and then you will be overridden by management at the last moment. So just just be aware that that dynamic occurs. So you don't want to tell somebody, hey, this is going away in six months, and have that whatever that thing is be dependent on something that legitimately is going away in six months, mm-hmm. like um, older versions of TLS. Right. Like if your PCI compliance, you know, they have a cutoff for that. And if they're using 1.0 or 1.1 and they're supposed to go to 1.2 in six months, which, by the way, that has already passed. You can't say six months from now, this is going away. My app, you have to say it's going away in four. That way, if somebody gives them leeway or clients just aren't paying attention, you can still recover. Yeah. You have to manage the way you communicate out of your department because your salespeople are not going to understand this. I just think of um, that uh, Star Trek, uh, that the, the one movie where the the new generation or the next generation and the old ones meshed. I can't remember which movie it was, but um, the Captain Picard asks Geordi how long it's going to take, and he gives him an estimate. And then after they stop talking, um, Scotty goes, all right, now how long is it actually going to take? Yeah. because that's how scotty was a miracle worker is he didn't estimate up the line yeah and you're gonna have to do this and i know that a lot of people will go well that's dishonest it's not dishonest it is making it so the client doesn't fail Mm -hmm. well it's it's setting realistic expectations as well yeah so next quickly we're going to talk about your help and documentation yeah your help system probably needs to ship with the app in other words, it doesn't need to be on a knowledge base necessarily on your side. It's great if it is, but it needs to ship with the app. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, depending on the client, they may not actually be able to get there. If it's a high security environment, they may not be able to actually go out. Or the list of websites that they can go to is very, very highly restricted and you're not on it. It's also important for clients that may be running an old version. The help system needs to match their particular system and the version that they are using. Right. So they don't go, you know, if their app is a year out of date, they don't go and say, oh, I can do this. And they tell their manager that they can do this and they make timelines based on it and they do all this work only to find out that, yeah, you got to pay, 
you know, however many thousand dollars for an upgrade. Yeah. And all, and update a bunch of hardware mm-hmm. for that to work. Do not put them in that situation. Also, help systems and documentation have to be first-class citizens and need to be tested and kept up to date as well. You know, we have a sort of a database documentation that our BA maintains. Yeah. And the reason that our BA and not our DBA or one of the developers maintains that is because she is not a technical person. And she's not full enough to trust the ones that are. <laughs> right. So, if she she writes it so that she understands it, so that the clients, when they get it, they look at it and they understand it too. Yep. We kind of have a similar dynamic uh, in our office for much the same reason. Mm-hmm. The thing is, help that's inaccurate or out of date or confusing can cause a lot of bigger problems than you'd expect. Help systems are not an afterthought, but should be considered a project feature and get prioritized in maintenance. Yeah, it has to, the documents that are updated have to ship mm-hmm. with the app that they're documenting. Right. You don't do that six months later. It goes with it. Mm-hmm. And if the app is ready, but the docs are not, the app is not ready. Right. There's no seam here. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times you will have uh, help built into the system. So when I said testing earlier, that's because if, you know, like you right click and go, what's this? Yeah. You you remember that kind of help? You need to make sure that goes somewhere because there's nothing more frustrating than a user that can't get an answer. And then they go to the help system and file not found. Yeah. So you want to test that so that those kind of things don't escalate. Your help system should also allow lookup of errors. You know, we talked about, you know, having uh, error codes and things like that set up so that you know uh, when something is is busted and you can actually back reference that you need to allow lookup of those in the help system. Yeah. Um, we talked about error codes earlier and the error 91 yeah. stuff. I think it was in the last episode actually. Yes. And we, we mentioned how they should be capable of being searched. And so they should be searchable uh, both in your knowledge base and in the help. And this allows your clients to resolve some of their own problems. You know, yeah, we, we've talked about how sometimes when they're trying to solve the, their own problems, they cause more. Yeah, but if they get proper guidance, the other thing this can do is a client goes and looks it up or somebody at the client goes and looks it up and fixes it. Now this person looks better to their management and you made that happen. Mm-hmm. So that makes them like you more. Yes. Makes everybody easier to work with. Mm-hmm. So finally, under support and maintenance, um, how support changes and what it does to you as a developer. Yeah. As a developer in white label applications, a lot of support is going to be by phone. This means expensive employee time and you need to optimize for being able to fix things quickly. Yeah. In this scenario, unclear error messages can really cost your company a lot of money, especially if support is included. Now I'll talk about one that I created. In this scenario, uh, we have an app that can have a whole bunch of different host names coming in for different clients, you know, different hosts. And if it doesn't find it, you get a sequence contains no elements error from link. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not very helpful. And for the longest time, we didn't fix that. And then I went in there and said, okay, I'm going to throw an exception that says this domain is not configured in the system. Go to this table and fix it so that when they get that error message, they know how to diagnose it. That's not necessarily for the client. They can look at it and tell what it is, but it's for our support team. Yeah. 
because I want to lower that cost. You, uh, if your support is included in your contract, right? In other words, you're supporting the client and that's one of the terms they get whatever support they need. If you waste support's time, you're costing your company money. If they're paying for the support, you're wasting their money, but you're wasting somebody's money. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got to fix that and that has to be a high priority. And if you're wasting your company's money, you're going to have your bosses mad at you. If you're wasting their company's money, you're going to have... Their bosses mad at your boss, which right. translates to exactly the same thing. Exactly. So That's don't what do I was that. getting at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you also need a means on your end to examine logs that come from them. So like they ship you a log, you probably don't want to just open that notepad plus plus and just go, oh, it's text. It's not text, it's structured data, unless you really screwed up. I really like VS Code because now they have a, uh, a log file class. And so I can put, I can open up my logs there in that. Huh. And it will, hi it will text highlight yeah. and it'll organize it for you. It's really nice. Well, you may also need to uh, do stuff like follow a correlation ID through the system. Mm -hmm. So you basically need some sort of light querying capabilities. Yeah. Um, and that may mean just straight up loading it into a database or something else. But mm -hmm. you're going to have to think about that as you structure your logging so that you can quickly get to an answer. Another thing that will happen is you have to be prepared for situations where you support your clients' clients. So you might like your clients and go, hey, they're reasonably intelligent folks. Their clients might not be. So they're end clients. Yeah, the end clients. Um, and they may be doing stuff for their clients as well. Like there's just, you don't know where this ends. Yeah. So it's turtles all the way down. We know half of the population is below average. <laughs> by yeah. definition, you will get one of them on the phone at some point. So you have to make clear error messages. That's the first thing. So that they know how to fix it so that you don't get involved. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's landmines. Because what are you going to do? You're going to go, oh, we're at fault. That makes you look bad in front of the clients. You're going to go, they're at fault. That makes the clients look bad, which makes you look bad because now you blame them. Or you're going to say the end client did it. So now you're playing them off of each other. So now. Yeah. It, it, it just keeps escalating. It, well, it's a three-part system, right? Yeah. Uh, groups of three are psychologically inherently unstable. Right. And you just made one. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind also that the end client may be programmatically integrating with the system as well. Yeah. So, that, you know, you, you just don't even know what they're going to do because they've already heard it. You know, like they didn't get their advice from you. They so, got whatever cargo cult crap that your client is doing repeated and they probably misunderstood it. So you may be writing a white label application that is being used by a white label application. It's like white label section. Yeah, it's it, it can get really, really bad. And that's why you want to <laughs> short circuit this stuff before it right. gets to be an issue. Now. You might also have to support integration partners of your clients. Now, this is a little bit different than uh, scenarios where it's your client's end client. This is somebody that's partnering with them and you know there's some bigger piece going on. And they may ask you for stuff that you normally wouldn't provide, but because a critical client needs it for their business to run, you may have to provide it because that may be a thing where you help the integration partner integrate with them and it causes that client to grow, which causes you to grow. Mm-hmm. So those kind of scenarios will happen too. Those calls are really, really irritating when something's going on because there's always going to be two parties blaming one and the party getting blamed is 
possibly not the one that did it. So you have to bear that in mind. There's a lot of psychology that goes into this. You have to really think about what you're saying. You can't just go off the cuff. You can't be the cranky coder in the hoodie. You know, that, that doesn't work here. <laughs> no, this is, you, you need some sales and yes. uh, conflict resolution. Like, I really think that that should be a part of um, training for pretty much every job. Yeah. But especially software developers, because so many of them are conflict avoidant. There's a lot of people in this industry that do what they do because they don't like dealing with people. Right. And the industry has changed since a lot of them got into it to where you are dealing with more people. Yeah. And that's your biggest problem. Yeah. Finally, you may need to support your clients' developers, support staff, and DBAs. Yeah, if your client's white labeling your software, they will certainly have people doing branding at the very least. And those people will need advising. You don't want them just winging it because they mm -hmm. may think, oh, I can change the HTML here. But what actually happens is that gets overwritten next time. Right. So you have to make that kind of stuff clear for people that don't know. You don't want to skimp in this scenario because if they do it the wrong way, it can constrain development for years to come. So like they change the HTML. Now you got to change your installer to go, hey, this file doesn't match the hash of the previous one. Don't overwrite it. Mm -hmm. Which also means now anything that that was calling that you thought was completely yours isn't anymore. Right. You need to be especially careful with DBAs and developers as they will make assumptions and then build based on the assumptions that they're making about your application. Right. Be very, very careful of anybody that's intelligent and builds a mental model especially off of incomplete information because you will get burned so bad. And then that gets to be your mental model because you've got to go, okay, well, I, I now have to deal with this. I can't mm -hmm. break them. Guys, white label applications offer an entirely different set of challenges than many developers are used to. However, if you're working at a software company that builds an application for sale, there is a good chance that your application will become a white label app at some point at least for some clients of the company. It's important to know what you're getting into before this happens. That pretty much wraps it up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, um, we, we had the discussion about white label apps. And you may think, okay, this is just one type of app. But the fact of the matter is most of the stuff you should be doing anyway. Treat people in other departments like they're a client that is dealing with a white label version of your app, especially if you're not in control of the whole deployment pipeline and support and all those kind of things. If you do that, you make it where they come in your office less with problems. It doesn't even matter that a white label client is outside the building. If you take the principles that you would use for that client and you apply them within an organization, it will still help you a lot. And that's actually why I made a two-part episode um, on this is because it is that useful. So that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. 
For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.